0: If you have your bulletin, the the text is printed in there. We're going to read the whole thing. And and it it is a long section of Scripture. Uh, We're probably going to look at this several weeks in a row because uh, this is perhaps the most controversial part of Paul's letter to the Romans. And it's also kind of difficult, just because of the way he words it, uh, a little bit difficult to get your head around. But I have to say that... Chapter 6, 7, and 8 of Romans are essential to understanding true historic Christianity. And they are essential to us understanding ourselves. I think it says so much in these chapters about what it is to be a human being than what it is to be a Christian in this world. And a lot of times when people think of Christians, they say, well, they're a bunch of hypocrites. And that certainly is true. In fact, it's a prerequisite to become a Christian is that you are a hypocrite. There's there's a falseness to us that we don't even understand ourselves. Paul goes right to the heart of it, and uh, I hope in the next few weeks we're going to stay in chapter 7 for a while, a couple weeks at least, uh, that we can untangle some of the language. It's it's just the the way it is. It's difficult sometimes to understand. So hear God's word, follow along with me, it's in your bulletin, or if you have your Bible, you can follow along there as well. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If there were no law, sin would have no power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command, do not cover, covet, for instance, the power of the law came to life and I died. So I discovered that the law's commands, which were Supposed to bring life brought spiritual death instead. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still, the law itself is holy and righteous and good. But how can this be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, but with us. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I'm not the one doing wrong. It is the sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing Good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there is another power within me that is at work in my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. That's a long section, and really, it you you have to read the whole chapter to to get a feel for where Paul is going with all this. And this can you can get up tangled in all the do's and don'ts there in the in, towards the end. Uh, but I'm going to go through it and try to try to sort it out for you. Let me read something to you from R.C. Sproul uh, because I just spent weeks telling you that we are not slaves to sin; that sin's been put to death. That the law's been that we've died to the sin, we've died to the law, we've died to these things, and we're free from their power. And then right away Paul comes in here and he starts talking about us being slaves to sin. And and you think, well, gosh, was he is he contradicting himself? Is he just confused? Does he not know what's going on? And the reality is that Paul was an, an unbelievably brilliant rabbi. And these rabbis of that era were incredibly uh, their intellectual horsepowers like nothing that we probably know today in our common world they memorized huge amounts of scripture they was they were uh, introduced to scripture at their earliest age and they began memorizing the bible they memorized the pentateuch they memorized the psalms and the proverbs they had huge swaths of the prophets memorized and and uh, uh, it, it's really incredible. So he would have known what he just said in chapter 6. He's not contradicting himself. Unfortunately, we'd be here for hours on end if we tried to do 6, 7, and 8 together, and I'd get fired. So the, the idea is where I'm going to take it in chunks, and hopefully if you come week by week, uh, you'll get a picture of, of what is really going on in Paul's mind. Listen to what R.C. says about us being dead to the law. And to sin. And no longer slaves to sin. And those things that that keep us in bondage. So in what sense have we died to the law? We have died with Christ. Our old selves have been put to death and the curse of the law has been taken in its fullness by Jesus Christ. The destructive fruit that the law elicited within us, incited us to sin, that has died. Nevertheless, although we have been made alive in our inward person, we do still have a relationship to the law. You see, Ten Commandments didn't go away. We still have a relationship to what is right and wrong. And God didn't give, we think often that that God gave us this enormous, that the Bible is an enormous set of rules. You could take all the rules in the Bible and you can put them on just a few pages, maybe 20, 30 pages at most. And that's all of them. In fact, if you look at just the moral law, which we are still obliged to keep, that's only Ten Commandments. And Jesus, in His teaching, and the Apostles, we're able to narrow those 10 down and say, if you love God and love your neighbor as yourself, you fulfill all 10. So the law is not some crushing thing that you've got to memorize millions of rules and keep all of these little rules. He's talking about a motivation of the heart. And RC says, we died to that. We died to that bondage that the law created, even though it was good. Because we think that by obeying God's rules, we become acceptable to Him. And even those of us who are sold to the idea of God's grace and forgiveness, we still struggle with that reality. And this is where Paul is a genius. He's going right down into the heart, to the deepest part of your heart, my heart, and he's he's unfolding it. I don't want to use the onion metaphor because it's just overused, especially by Shrek. We don't want to use those metaphors. So I'm not going to say onion, but he unfolds us down to the the deepest part of who we are as human beings. And so we listen to this. Let me finish what R.C. said. Christians, uh, nevertheless, although we have been made alive In our inward man, see, we died died and then we came alive. That's what the resurrection is before the bodily resurrection. Nevertheless, although we have been made alive in our inward man, we do still have a relationship with the law, albeit radically different from the old relationship with the law. Now hear this. Christians have been resurrected into a new life in Christ so that they should now bear fruit to God. What the law failed to elicit from us, Christ wants to see born through our relationship to Him. So justification by faith and living under grace is never a license to sin. But we are to be encouraged by our new status by the power of life that is within us, that righteousness is a possibility. And that fruit of Christ can be brought forth from us. We have a new relationship to the law because we died to it and we were resurrected. The law is still good. It's still there. But our relation to to it has changed dramatically. And so in 6, 7, and 8, Paul is is telling us that. And we can get lost, and I'm going to see if I can untangle a little bit of it this morning for all of us. I'm not going to solve it. There's just no way that I can solve it. But he does settle the question about us and the law in 7. He raises more, unfortunately, but we'll we'll look at that in a moment. What Paul is saying in a big picture is the law is good. The law is not the problem. The problem is the law shines a light on our hearts. Whether you believe in the Ten Commandments or not, look, you can go all over this globe and religions basically, in very real ways, hold to the same general morality. Don't kill, don't steal, don't commit adultery, don't rob. You know, they have different definitions in different cultures for what adultery is or stealing and all that. But the general sense is... That God planted in humanity, when He created us, in His image, what is called an innate understanding inside of us, just our DNA. We are wired a certain way. When we have children, we don't eat our children. Some people wonder why we shouldn't, after they get a little older. But the idea is that we know right and wrong innately from birth, and then we are introduced to the law, to the Ten Commandments, or to whatever other law in the f- other faith you want to choose. Uh, everyone is kind of going back to this kind of morality that is simply unchangeable. And by redefining sin, I talked about this a few weeks ago, by just looking at a sin that God says, don't do this, and we, you know, we say, I, I think I'm going to redefine it and make it okay, doesn't make it okay. It still nags at our at our conscience. So, modern culture has told us, well, let's redefine it to an extent that we don't even talk about it or say that it's sinful, and we just put it out there everywhere, and eventually it'll be accepted. It'll be okay. And it's not going to work. It never has worked. It's been tried before. We think that we're innovative in the twenty first century. We're not. We're just re. We're just re uh, doing the same thing, just with different clothes. But the dead person underneath, still there. And that is the nature of humanity. So in our church, we try to tell you the truth. It's a hard truth to hear that the law and God's holiness is a threat to us until we submit to Him and fall in love with His Son whom He gave to us. And this is where Paul... He's moving us through all this in the book of Romans, and it's it's just magnificent. So here, he asks three questions, and that's what I'm going to do this morning. Just go through the questions. Look at the first one in verse 7. Well, am I suggesting that God's law is sinful? And he uses that strong term I told you in Greek. No, never. Absolutely not. Of course not. May it never be. It's hard to translate. It's a double no. No, no. And then look at his answer. This is just good pedagogy. He's just a good teacher. Well, am I suggesting that God's law is sinful? Of course not. And then he says the answer. The reason God's law exists is to show me my sin. I wouldn't have known if the law had not said, you must not covet. Now, he picks the one commandment in the ten that is a heart issue. See, coveting is not something you do out here like adultery or uh, murder or stealing. It's not out in there. It's in here. And that was where God got him. That's where God trapped the Apostle Paul and squeezed all that horrible religiosity out of him on the road to Damascus. He just crushed it. And that's what he's done with each of us. If you uh, came to Christ when you were later in life maybe, or or maybe you were raised in the church, and you always loved Jesus, but then you had a time where you kind of went away, the only way you can come back, the only way is if God comes in and does something to you. Crushes that sin and evil and makes it power. He kills it so that you can come alive. Sin look at verse 8. Sin used the law do not covet to arouse in me all kinds of covetous desires. I mean what human being doesn't know that? Say don't do that and what do we do? We do it. We don't only do it. We do it with gusto. Sometimes we go way overboard. Well, maybe I'm the only one, but I, I, you know, I don't eat one chocolate chip cookie. I decide, when I look at the plate, I think, which one, how, how many am I going to save? I'm going to eat all these chocolate chip cookies. <laughs> Dr. Bernard told me there were donuts in there this morning. I, I, you're not helping me. You know, think about, I'm, I'm joking, but in, in a way I'm not. Think about it. Sin is insatiable. It never gets enough. And so to to just step into it, you become enslaved to it and it begins taking you away. Do not covet. Yeah, sure. It arouses it. You just say it and it just arouses covetous. If there was no law, he says in verse 8, then the sin would not have power over me. You see, if God never told you what was wrong with you, it wouldn't have any power you just go along your merry way and do whatever you want and the world would be, uh, the world would look like the zombie apocalypse. That's what it would be. You know, people say often, I remember one apologist saying that people ask the question, why is the world so bad? Look at all the evil in the world. And this apologist said, ask them, how do you account then for all the good? Where do you get all the good, the beauty, the wonder, the grace? You go out into nature and you can't believe the beauty. Even here in the desert, I love the desert. And I go out there when I used to ride my motorcycles in the desert. You'd go out there and just there was a feeling, a sense of transcendence when you're in nature. And even when you go to an art show or to a beautiful movie that moves you or listen to our group, our musicians, or a beautiful piece of music. It, transe- it takes you somewhere. Why is that? If you're just an animal, and you have an animal nature, what is going on? Well, you're not, and something's eating away at that goodness. And we know it. It's like cancer. I've had two cancers. Two different ones. And if the doctors hadn't found it, if they hadn't discovered it and told me what it was and put me in some kind of therapy to fix it, I wouldn't be here today. Which perhaps pleases some of you. I don't know. I don't. No, I mean, are we crazy? We've got to know what's wrong with this. And God is gracious. He asked Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? What do you think he's doing? He didn't know where they were. He knew exactly where they were. He was showing them grace. He was telling him, "You got a disease. Come on, get out from behind that fig tree and get over here. I can fix this." But instead, we hide, we suppress the truth, and we replace it with a lie. That is the human condition, and Paul talked about that amazingly in just a few verses in Romans chapter one. So this is where he's. He's going, we were were infected with sin. We were. But now, something has changed. Look at verse 9 and 10. Once I lived, now he's talking all past tense, talking about himself. Once I lived without understanding of the law. Well now, he's not saying I didn't know anything about it. He was raised from a child knowing what the law was. But somehow it hadn't sunk in. The light didn't come on for Paul. Even though he knew the law and was probably obeying it scrupulously, something didn't click. Once I lived without understanding, but when I learned the command, do not covet, for instance, the power of sin came to life. There was a point in his life when the the reality of coveting Wanting what everybody else has, this envious and jealous spirit that every human being fights. Just this one. It came to life. He was aware of it. And all it did for him, the only thing it did for him, was kill him. Condemn him. Make him feel hopeless and dead. He couldn't manage it. I'm not supposed to covet, but I can't help it. It's aroused in me. It goes crazy. And all I can do is push it down, put on my church face, and go to church and act like everything's okay. That should elicit an amen from this church. Amen. Amen. We come, we put our masks on, and we run into church with all our junk hidden and suppressed and down, way down in the bottom here somewhere. And we think we've got it under control and all it's doing is killing us. Supposed to bring life, but it brought spiritual death instead. sin look at verse eleven, sin took advantage of the commands, it deceived me. see the s- sin tells you, keep the law, keep it, and you'll be okay. you'll be a good person, and when you die, you can go to God and say, "Hey, you know I wasn't that bad." I tried to do the best I could. I did this and that and the other thing. I mean, really, actually, can you, know, can you cut me a little break? I mean, that little thing I did over here is not so bad. And we negotiate. We try to negotiate. We try to, to tell God the fig leaves will cover us. And there's little things peeking out all over those fig leaves. and not being covered. All right? It's not happening. Sin took advantage of the commands. It deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. You see, sin is the problem. Not the law, not the commandments. The commandments are good and holy and true. Verse 12, but still the law commands. The law and its commands are holy, right, and good. So what is, let's just say a couple things about the law, and then I want to move on and This is just an overview. Next week we'll go a little bit deeper into chapter 7. But you need to get a sense of where he's going with all of this. The law, God's law, even the law, the original law in the garden, there were just two imperatives in the garden. Be fruitful, multiply, and steward the earth. Take good care of the earth. Be fruitful, have children, make sure your crops grow, make sure your animals produce, whatever. Okay, And... Do not eat from this tree, this tree of knowledge of good and evil. I only want you. God was basically saying, I want you to know good. I don't want you to know evil. Trust me, and you'll know good. And of course, the minute he said, don't trust me, or uh, don't eat from the tree, what do you think? Off to the tree they go. Now, we don't know how long it took, or what it, you know, that's just speculation. But the meaning behind the story is absolutely true. We went for something that would make us, in fact, the text says, Satan told them, you'll be just like God if you eat from this tree. And folks, there's nobody in here that doesn't want to be their own God, yes? I mean, we want to. Even me, as spiritual as I am, I'm a professional holy person. And even I want to be my own God. And I struggle with it. Okay. So the law sets guardrails. It's there to define sin. It's there to help us spot the cancer. To see the problem. To identify it. Not redefine it, but identify it and then somehow deal with it. But when you're not when you have no spiritual life in you, you're not going to be able to deal with it. It's just going to continue to kill you and kill you. And the more you try to obey, the harder it's going to get to obey, and you're, there's this incredible tension, and Paul says it's like being dead. It's killing you. So question two, look at it, verse 13. But how can this be did the law which is good cause my death here we go of course not of course the law is the law's good it didn't cause my death sin is what caused my death look at 13 sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death so we can see now here's the rabbi talking about all you. we all of us can see How terrible sin really is. It's deceptive. It comes in and lies and lies and lies. But sin doesn't take us and just make us do things like a robot. We concur with it. We agree with it. And we move. We try to hide it, but we move with it. We're using our free will. Okay. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good command for its own evil purposes. Sin brought death. The law simply showed Paul and all of us how hopeless it was to try and justify ourselves before God by keeping a set of rules. We were dead in our sins and trespasses, the Bible says. We, couldn't, we could not possibly have satisfied any of the requirements. We needed God to cover us with grace. To do something for us so the law is not constantly killing you. And I told you last week, if you're a Christian, if you're a believer in Christ, and Christianity just is incredibly burdensome to you, and you're constantly condemning yourself and you're just never measuring up and you're always thinking what do i do what do i i'm never going to be a good christian that's true jesus was the good one will you trust him and then he will apply that goodness to you along with all the fruit of the spirit that's where paul is moving so look now at 14 through 17 this will help you enormously, those of you that perhaps have struggled with this particular passage. These, these verses 7 through, uh, through 12, actually, I pointed out to you, they're all past tense. He's talking about himself in the past tense. I was these things. But it's interesting. Scholars have seen and noticed and pointed out there's a change in tense in verse 14. He goes to the present tense. Now he's talking about something that's happening now in his experience. And I do believe that Paul's talking about himself and his present experience as a believer in Jesus. Now, not everybody uh, agrees with that. And if you don't, it's okay. We respect that. I had professors in seminary brilliant Greek uh, you know these guys that knew all the Greek language and were so smart and New Testament scholars some of them even specialized in the book of Romans and even they didn't agree but I'm going to give you this one view and if you want to take another view we can talk about that sometime that Paul's talking about some imaginary thing but I'm going to give you this view because it I believe that it goes to the heart of who we are I, I don't The other one I don't think does that as well. Paul shifts into the present tense. Look at these these verses. 14, 15, 16. So the trouble is not with the law. For it is spiritual. The trouble is with me. For I am. He's talking about now. I'm all too human. I'm a slave to sin. Is he contradicting? No. He's not contradicting chapter 6 and chapter 5. He's... Let him explain. Look at 15. I don't understand myself. I want to do what is right, but I don't. Instead, I do what I hate. But I, if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. Right now, he's agreeing that the law is good. I have never yet met a Christian that just, we sit down at Starbucks and talking and about life and all this, and they tell me, you know, I love my sin. My sin is so fulfilling. It's so great. I love having a wife and a secretary and this gal over in Memphis that I go see when I travel. I love that. It's the greatest thing in my life. That has never happened to me. I love being addicted to drugs. I love being an alcoholic. It's wonderful. I would never want to be anything but enough. I love uh, being greedy with my money and stingy and I getting all my meaning from money. I've never met that person. Never. I've never met a pastor who says, you know, I love being prideful and arrogant about my education and knowing more than everybody else and all that stuff. And I want to see my church so full. I love seeing my church full. And all these people giving me money. That's a a myth. We know something's wrong. It kills us. It enslaves us. I know I want to do right, but I can't do it. Something's still going on. But he's talking about his present. Let's see. I can't do what is good, and I don't. I don't understand myself. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. In other words, now, in his present time, Paul says, I know the law is good. You see, he's aware of it, he knows it's good, and he's trying to do it. I don't know how many of you have read uh, J.C. Ryle's book, Holiness. Have any of you read that book, J.C. Ryle's Holiness? Magnificent book. Um, I've read it several times. In fact, I did a, a paper on J.C. Ryle uh, in seminary. Let me read this to you. It's It's remarkable. True Christianity is a fight. Do we find in our heart a spiritual struggle? Do we feel anything of the flesh lusting against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh so that we cannot do the things we would? Are we conscious? Listen, are we conscious of two principles within us? contending for mastery? Do we feel anything of war in our inward person? Well, then let us thank God. It is a good sign. It is strongly probable evidence of the great work of sanctification. All true saints are soldiers. Anything is better than apathy, listen, stagnation, deadness, and indifference. We are in better state than many. The most part of so-called Christians have no feeling at all. I say it again. Let us take comfort. The children of God have two great marks. They may be known by their inward warfare, as well as their inward peace. He's saying that that struggle that you have is an evidence that life is in you. That Jesus is in your life. And instead, we resort time and again to our strength, our willpower, our resolve to break the bonds of sin. And Paul is saying it's impossible. And he's describing himself saying, listen, I'm an apostle, and I still struggle with this, but... There is hope. And the hope is in the very thing you wouldn't think. It's in the struggle. Are you struggling? Are you fighting? Do you hate your sin? I hate it when I go home after Sunday and I just start getting insecure and all that. I hate it. But I get all my meaning from what happens here at church. It's hard to say, but it's true. And so many of us, before that I got all my meaning from the business I owned. And my achievement, how well my kids behaved. If they didn't behave, it reflected on me. I really didn't care what was going on in their little hearts. Behave, because it makes me look good. And you know what it does to our kids? What do you think it does? Kills them. Kills them dead. You know, I would never do that to my children. I haven't met a parent yet that hasn't done it. Yes? Yes? Am am I off the rails totally? No. I mean, it's all about performance, performance. You know, because that's the way the world is made, that's okay. But you don't do that with God. He is off off the continuum. You don't negotiate with Him. He's holy. We're not. We need Him. He doesn't need us. And He pours His life into us simply because He loves us. That's the definition of grace. I love you for nothing. Nothing you can give me. I will pay the price. I'll pay the need. And he takes his own son and puts him on a cross for all of us to see. And we bow down to that and we say, Lord Jesus, I love you. And then we spend our lives trying to earn his favor. Do you see how agonizing Paul is? He's agonizing. And he wants you to agonize with him. He's a good teacher. So he's not sugarcoating anything. He's saying, here it is. It's a war. It's a battle but we're in a better state now than we were because we know. Now we know what it is. We see the enemy. All the lights are on in our life, and we can see it, and that's good for us. Why? Because the presence of sin is still there. Look at 18 through 20. We've got to go fast. I'm sorry. I know nothing good lives in me. That isn't my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do. But I do what I don't want to do. I am not really the one who's doing it. It's sin bringing it to me. It's sin that's living in me. Now, he's he's not trying to to a blame shift to this thing called sin. He's just saying sin is still present. How is it still present? Listen carefully. Sin's presence is still there. All through Romans, I've told you, Paul takes us through, first the penalty. Chapter 3, he says, the penalty for sin has been obliterated by the propitiatory death of Jesus. Jesus dies and pays that penalty. Once and for all, the penalty's paid. There's no more penalty. Then in chapter 5 and 6, he says the power of sin is broken. It's dead. It's gone from, from controlling us. And then he brings us the truth, the reality, that even though the power is broken, even though the penalty has been paid, the presence of sin still exists in this world and in our flesh. When he's talking about in our flesh, he's talking about our our habitual, what I call the habitual nature of growing up a certain way with certain DNA, with certain natural impulses, with all of that, and then everything that society imprints. All of those things. We grow up with that. We meet Jesus Christ. He puts the old man to death, but that sinful part of us still exists in us and out here around us. And God wants it that way. He wants us to put the armor of, that He gives us, that spiritual armor, and He wants us to go and fight with sin, not with our willpower and not with the t- some kind of trickery, but He wants us to walk in the Spirit. And that's where He's going I've discovered this principle in life. Look at twenty-one. That when I want to do what is right, I can't do it. I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law. You see, some people that are not born again, who are not spiritual creatures, they they don't they don't love God's law. They avoid it. They redefine it. Get it away from me. It's driving me nuts. But how can you read your Old Testament and you see time after time the? the writers of the Old Testament saying, Lord, I love your law. I love it. What was so good about it? Because it brought life. And it can bring life now, but only through the Spirit, okay? And we'll talk about that maybe next year. Or next, yeah, next year. (laughs) We'll talk about it next year. I've discovered this principle and I do, I do wrong. Look at 22. I love God's law with all my heart. This is your true self, the born-again heart. I love God's law, but I'm finding it difficult to do it. Okay, that's good. Why? Because of the third question. And let me give you this quickly. Look at 24. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? Who will do it? He's telling you here's the struggle and it is a battle and there's a lot of bloodshed in this battle. If you have been a Christian for any length of time, you know that there's a lot of of exhortation that you have to exert yourself. Who's going to deliver me from all of that? Who Twenty-five. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see how it is in my mind? That's my true self, my born-again self. I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm still a slave to sin. He's not contradicting himself. What he's saying is that sin's presence is still exerting pressure. And I told you last week and, and, and in the weeks before that, This pressure is a deceptive pressure. He can't force you. You are not addicted to sin any longer. That power has been broken, but it's still present, and it makes us feel like a slave, and that is the struggle. And the only way, folks, that you're going to get rid of that slavery is not by focusing on the sin. Robert Murray McShane said, for every look you take at your sin... Take what? Any of you remember? I've said it a hundred times. For every look you take at sin, take ten looks at Jesus. Take ten looks at Him for every look. But what we do as Christians, we we get focused so much on how bad we are and how good we're supposed to be that we forget how good He is. And what He's done in our lives and that His presence, His Holy Spirit, was promised to us and He is there. And the very fact that we're struggling and fighting against this is a good sign. And you should not despair and give up. No, what do you do? What is the thing that you do when sin is crushing you and you just can't do it? Run to Jesus. Run to Him. You don't look at your sins and say, oh, no, what am I going to do? Okay, I've got to make a list. i got to do this. No. You run to Jesus. He'll take care of you. Thank God, He says in verse 25. Jesus Christ. And then chapter 8 is unbelievable. He describes the life promised to us through the Spirit in Jesus and I'll tell you, folks, those of you with kids and those of you that have struggled like I have with my Christianity, I mean, my kids are grown. I have grandkids now. And every time I see them, I think, my, my kids, I think, man, I, you know, I wish I could go back and do it over. But you know, if I did, what would I do? Same thing. I me- In fact, I would have messed it up worse. If I'd have taken everything I know now and gone back then, I would have really messed them up. You know, we got to trust God with every part of our lives, including our children, including ourselves. Look inside. Will you trust Jesus with your life and not your hard work and your effort? Not it is hard work, but that's not what you focus on. You focus on what he did for you, on the cross, in His perfect life, in the power of the resurrection. And now, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you have the expulsive power of a new affection, another love to displace those other loves. And that's what we'll talk about in the next few weeks. Father, help us, please. We are such a mess, and we've done such a poor job, Father, reflecting you and your Son to the world around us. We just look like a bunch of failures, and in a lot of ways we are. So please work humility in us and change the goal of our eye, where we put our eyes. Let us put them on our treasure, Christ, and not on our sins, certainly not on our good behavior. Lord, have mercy. And our evil doings and our good doings are all the same. We need to turn our eyes to Him. I ask that You would do that for us, please. In Christ's name, Amen.